Hello, hello, young professionals in energy. I hope all of you have had a safe and lovely 2020. Uh, we need to apologize for not releasing any podcast uh, episodes for nearly an entire year. Uh, it's been a rough year for the world and especially in the energy space. For those of us in oil, it's been pretty devastating to watch the demand for our product drop nearly 35%, basically overnight. We realize uh, a lot of people have been struggling, and we apologize for not being here for you to chat more and podcast more during this pandemic. Uh, on a personal note, I'll have you know, this is my final day of quarantine. After catching COVID, uh, I survived. And while I know it's been horrible, aka uh, fatal for some folks, it really wasn't that bad for me. Anywho, uh, that's a long-winded excuse to say, sorry for our absence, uh, but you can trust us to be back now. Uh, we're releasing this podcast right before Thanksgiving in 2020, uh, nearly a year after we recorded it. But fear not, uh, all of the information is still relevant. Uh, our guest our guest is Saxon McKibben, who, in my opinion, is an absolute rock star and stud in the renewable energy space. Uh, he's got a wealth of knowledge about his company, Invenergy, and the electric electricity industry in general. Uh, hopefully you learned something. We certainly did. Welcome to another episode of Young Professionals in Energy. I'm Mark Heineman, and I'm with Franklin Mountain Energy and YPE Denver here, uh, Young Professionals in Energy in Denver here, sitting here today in Invenergy's office with my co-host, uh, Jake and Ellen. Jake, Ellen, how are you guys doing? Doing great. How are you doing, Mark? Fantastic. Yeah, doing well and looking forward to hearing a little bit about power generation and especially wind. Yeah. Cool. This is a pretty uh, special podcast recording today. It's actually going to be a two-part podcast. Uh, the first part will be speaking with one of their origination specialists. Uh, and then the second part will be working with some people in their wind department. So did I get that right, Ellen? Yeah. The uh, So we're going from origination to project development. Project development. Yeah. So starting with origination and then, yeah, going awesome. on through development. Cool. So our first guest, Saxon McKinvin. Saxon, uh, let's just jump right into it. Why don't you uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself and your role at Invenergy? Yeah, sounds good. Uh, so my name is Saxon McKinvin. Uh, I'm born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. Um, grew up on the north suburb side of the city. Uh, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison where I studied energy economics, which kind of introduced me to uh, wholesale power markets and, you know, the interconnection of technology and economics. Uh, and it kind of was a, a real world application of my education. So that kind of introduced me to uh, the energy industry. At that time, I didn't know what I didn't know because the industry is is vast and you can spend your whole entire life learning. <laughs> That's um, why we're doing this yeah, podcast. <laughs> exactly right. Um so that was my introduction, uh, kind of, I conceived an idea that that's kind of how I wanted to spend my career. Um, and so I graduated with a degree in economics, didn't find a, a job in energy right off the bat. Uh, I spent a year and a half in the healthcare manufacturer and distribution industry doing kind of supply chain analysis uh, for another company, but ultimately 
I switched my path and started working for a retail energy supplier um, just outside of Chicago called Nordic Energy Services. At that company, I was uh, doing some scheduling in the day ahead for load and also doing gas nominations uh, on the retail level. Essentially, you, you have a position, you have customers to serve in deregulated energy markets, uh, and we would go out and schedule power to serve that load or buy gas in an optimal way to kind of serve the consumption of uh, those uh, customers. Also, I was doing pricing on large industrial customers. So um, when they don't like the uh, utility rate that they're paying or they consume energy or gas in a, in a certain way, uh, they can contract with retail energy suppliers and uh, get a more attractive rate and lock in um, specific rates for both energy and gas. So did you make the jump from, you said it was Nordic? Correct. To Invenergy or how did you land at Invenergy then? Um, so I interviewed at Invenergy while I was working at Nordic and kind of saw the opportunity to be on the wholesale and asset generation side of the business as a, as a good trajectory uh, from a retail energy supplier on. Um, and, you know, having a year and a half at Nordic kind of allowed me to get a job in the asset management department at Invenergy. Great. And that's the origination group at Invenergy? So I actually started out on the thermal asset management team. Uh, so Invenergy develops and owns and operates a lot of their power plants that they develop. Um, on the thermal side, it's our, our natural gas business. So we have, I think, 5,500 megawatts of installed capacity throughout North America. Um, and from an asset management perspective, uh, I managed a few of our uh, merchant combined cycle and simple cycle power plants. One of those was our Nelson facility, uh, 100 miles west of Chicago. It's a 600 megawatt combined cycle uh, gas turbine produces power into the ComEd utility in the, the broader PJM RTO. You might have to define those terms for our <laughs> listeners. Yes. Our, our <laughs> uh, so RTO, ISO, uh, it stands for uh, Regional Transmission Operator. Okay. And essentially that is the wholesale power market. Um, in this case, it's PJM, which I don't necessarily know the acronym. I think it's changed over the years, but it mm. was the first wholesale power market that became into existence back in the, the 20th century. The order escapes me right now, mm -hmm. um, but I believe it stands for Pennsylvania something. Uh, and essentially there's PGM, there's MISO, which is Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, uh, then there's ERCOT, which is the Electricity Reliability Commission of Texas. Yep. And then you know, there's California ISO, and there are all these wholesale power markets. And uh, the combined cycle power plant that I helped manage was in uh, PJM. Okay. I also managed one of our uh, combined cycles in uh, the Ontario power market, uh, IESO. That was also a 600 megawatt combined cycle power plant. And then we have a, a simple cycle uh, gas turbine in West Texas, Hector County Energy Center. Cool. Now you are working on the origination. So yeah, bring us, bring us there and tell us about your current roles and responsibilities and how was that transition going from natural gas to uh, some of the other responsibilities that you've got right now? 
That is correct. Um, yeah, so I transitioned to the origination team uh, about six months ago in mid-2019. I view it as a, a strong transition from the operations side of the business to the more development and transactional side of the business. So in the asset management side, we're managing these power plants. You know, we already have contracts in place to produce power. We're scheduling that power in whatever electricity market each of these plants exists in on a daily basis. And, you know, we're maintaining reliability for the grid. Whereas on the origination side of the business, you're kind of looking at different, you know, a nebulous of development rights uh, trickled throughout North America. And when a given utility or government agency or municipality comes along uh, and they need, you know, 200 megawatts of solar or wind or, you know, whatever technology they're looking for in the future, origination uh, would be kind of the, the group in the company that understands that customer, understands the market, you know, knows what development rights Invenergy has going on and, you know, what makes the most economic sense and what creates the most value for that utility and kind of um, figures out a, a solution for what they're asking for. Okay. And so by solution, you mean contract, pricing, where the project is going to be built, all of the above? Yeah. So um, yeah, how many different facets of, of the project or I guess variables are there that you can dive into? So there's the technology, um, which drives a lot of different aspects when you're you're pricing up a power plant. Um, and technology meaning generation selection. Are we, are we going to be generating electricity with solar panels, windmills, cool generation, right? Gas, thermal? Yes. Okay. So Invenergy is kind of bread and butter is uh, wind energy. You know, it's the most installed capacity uh, that we have done. Uh, By a lot, right? That's correct. Uh, I think the number right now is over 14,000 uh, megawatts of installed capacity um, over the last uh, almost 20 years uh, in operation. Um, so, you know, a big driver in the, the cost for wind is, you know, the wind turbines and, mm -hmm. you know, what size turbines you are procuring, uh, where you're putting them. Um, if there's an abundant resource for wind in that area, um, is, is the You guys land. have to measure that. I mean, typically you'll have, what, a year of measurement? Yeah, I think the, the, the site that you want to have the development, right? The minimum that you want real data for, you know, a wind turbine or a, a MET tower, which is the, the measuring device, uh, is generally a year um, because you want to ensure that that resource is consistent and that kind of information helps you have confidence in the asset that you're you're developing. Um, but in the in the beginning, I would say that, you know, it wasn't necessarily that wasn't a, a standard uh, for wind energy. You know, you, you didn't really know how much wind you were going to develop or uh, kind of harvest on an annual basis. And, you know, you see projects that looked viable that may or may not have been based on where it sits in the geographical um, like layout. Would it be accurate to say that folks were going out and developing projects without adequate information about the supply of wind? I think so. You know, maybe some of the, the yeah. first movers in the industry <laughs> really uh, had a few well, projects go sour based on, you know, how, how much wind they actually received and, you know, how much capital they put into the project. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. A little bit more methodical now. Yes. Yeah. You know, people, they're using a lot of real-time debt because in the early uh, 2000s, you know, there wasn't a huge track record of success in the, the wind energy. So, you know, you're constantly, and we are doing this internally as a company, which is accruing analytics and, and understanding how to optimize and develop better. So it's a, it's a constant feedback loop of where to develop um, wind and, you know, how to do it better. Got it. So, but you sort of alluded to the technology aspect too. So that's another factor that has changed in recent years, right? Turbines are bigger, they're generating more. What are some other changes that are going on right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, turbines are getting bigger, uh, they're getting more efficient, and you're kind of optimizing the layout to harvest as much wind uh, as possible from different sites. Uh, and then there are also, uh, you know, federal tax incentives that kind of help uh, the wind uh, energy finance projects and give it some uh, some momentum from the financing community. Uh, and then there are tariffs, steel tariffs, things like that that mm. drive the cost down. So, in a in a nutshell, I know we're just talking about wind right now, but we're always yeah. thinking about kind of the levelized cost of energy. Um, so, on renewables. Um, the upfront capital cost is very large. So you go mm -hmm. out and develop and construct a facility. Uh, and so it's a large upfront cost, but then the variable cost to harvest that wind from existing wind turbines is zero. Right. So you're getting kind of free fuel, uh, from the wind or the sun shining or, you know, the water flowing, things like that, where the resource is, is free. So when you look at the whole levelized cost of energy, that's how we're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, one aspect of renewables, however, is that, you know, it's an intermittent resource. Yep. So when the wind dies down on a, a hot day in August, when everyone is using their air conditioning, that's problematic. So being able to decide when to, to produce power is, there's a lot of value in being able to, to turn on a generator and produce 300 megawatts uh, in when low peak load occurs. When you look at those levelized cost of electricities, mm -hmm. are you factoring in that that riskiness of the fact that the wind doesn't always blow? Or is that just not something that we can quantify? Okay. Um, yeah, so the level of certainty in the resource is definitely factored into the analysis. Um, you know, and. Uh, a wind engineer will go out and kind of do an, an energy assessment for how much wind we expect to uh, harvest from a given development site and then how much that actually translates to power production. Uh, and there is, you know, depending on your risk appetite, that is identified uh, in the pricing, what level of confidence we have in the resource. So that definitely goes into uh, the overall price. Cool. I'm curious, what what's the turnaround time or life cycle, I guess, to go from, oh, wow, we think there might be a resource to develop a new project to we're ready to build and execute in construction for a typical solar wind utility scale project? That's a good question. It definitely can vary, unsurprisingly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there are a few different constraints in various markets. Um, so SPP, which is the Southwest Power Pool, that's kind of the Great Plains uh, of the United States. That's where 
wind uh, is an abundant resource uh, and we've seen you know a ton of wind capacity get installed over the past uh, 20 years there um, and one of the kind of constraints in that market is the interconnection queue process so you submit yep. to the RTO <laughs> and they have to do feasibility studies and various studies to figure out you know how these uh, how these developers can actually, if, if they're generating assets, how it'll affect the overall grid. Um, so that can take upwards of three years. Yep. Um, and so that's an example of a constraint in that market, whereas you could definitely go out and, and get enough land to support uh, a wind project uh, in a shorter amount of time. So it really depends on you know what market you're trying to develop in and the, the constraints associated with it. Yeah, I am dealing with that personally. We I reached out to the Southwest Power Pool and to kind of do a scoping for one of our own projects. And yeah, you're exactly right. They said they're still working on projects from uh, end of 2016 that were submitted in the queue then. And we're, I mean, we're recording this at the end of 2019, so three years later. Mm. So how often are you ha- getting someone, having someone approach you with a project doing your due diligence on, is there enough wind? Um, are we going to have interconnection issues? How often are you actually finding, you know what, this just isn't economic. I'm sorry, we're not going to go through with this project. Or do you always find a way to make it work? We don't always find a way to make, you know, unviable projects work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, but I would say that, um, based on whatever, you know, market that we're looking at and the, the utilities that exist, the investor-owned utilities or municipalities or cooperatives or G&Ts in that area, they generally uh, go to market in a what is called a request for proposals RFP process and have a desired amount of capacity or generation resource that they would like to pick up. Uh, and this is kind of a, a systematic go-to-market based on, you know, their five to 10 year plan. Um, So these entities have to submit an integrated resource plan, which, you know, tells them how much capacity and resource resource adequacy they have in the market, whether load is growing or decreasing in their area. Um, A lot of times we're seeing that load is decreasing just based on efficiency, or if it's a more metropolitan area, load is increasing. Mm Um, but they go and analyze all these factors, have sensitivities, and then come out with a plan that gets approved. Um, and that kind of drives their decision making on how to pick up uh, generating assets. And so, you know, when that happens, we see an RFP for a certain amount of capacity in a certain area. And we kind of holistically look at our projects located nearby or on their transmission system because you know that that is value to have the actual energy asset producing power on their their service territory and then figure out what is the most economical or what creates the most value uh, given uh, the characteristics of the RFP and kind of uh, smash those together in a proposal and um, you know the end goal would be to transact or or sign a contract to either sell power for the next twenty to thirty years, or transfer that asset. Twenty to thirty years, nice. So is that is that pretty a pretty typical contract agreement then? 
I would term. say uh, the typical term for power purchase agreements mm-hmm. uh, is anywhere between 10 and 25 years. You know, the, the asset life of these renewables is 35 plus years. Um, there are not that many assets that have been around that long. Um, but, you know, the equipment and hardware has certain guarantees on it. So that's generally what we're seeing. So beyond that power purchase agreement term, you know, we look at what the market for power is going to be in 2040 and beyond and kind of, um, you know, try to understand what power will, will be traded yeah. at at that point, which who knows if, uh, if anyone here has a better guess than I do, then uh, <laughs> let's let's talk after. Then, yeah, and we should be making bets. Invenergy has a little bit of a different business model, or I guess more of an ownership model than some development firms that I've, I've spoken with or we've spoken with. Um, you know, some folks have kind of a PE model where they just want to build, get the deal, and then sell it to someone else to go and build it um, and construct it, right? But mm-hmm. you guys have more of an owner-centric model where you want to own the project for the life of the project. I guess, can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, I would say that the we see a lot of value in um, owning and operating assets. Um, Invenergy has uh, a wing of the company called Invenergy Services, which has, you know, at this point, almost 20 years of experience in operating wind and solar farms. Um, so we have a, a broad understanding of how to optimize these assets. Um, and, you know, our core philosophy is kind of entering communities and creating value uh, for landowners and, you know, economic value for the actual community itself via uh, taxes. So um, that, you know, that is one of our core principles where we're not just, you know, opportunistically uh, uh, flipping power generating assets and trying to capture peak value. We see a lot of the value in the tenure of the generating assets. Um, that being said, you know, markets shift up and down. So we do opportunistically look at selling or at least dividing equity in, in assets when, when it makes sense. It's great. It sounds like you're both the architect and the carpenter work on all phases of it. Um, and so based off of that experience, I'm curious, what opportunities for improvement do you see when it comes to wind energy? I would say uh, a big opportunity that I see in terms of wind energy uh, in the U.S. would be transmission. Um, I think I commented on this earlier that a lot of the the resource, the wind resource, is in the central part, the central Great mm-hmm. Plains of yeah. North America. Where we don't have as many people, right? Exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of far away from load. And what you're seeing is there's not enough transmission lines for the power to flow to where people are actually consuming the power, which is, you know, mostly on the East Coast. That's generally the way power flows in the U.S. from from West to, or at least central to east. And then sometimes, you know, there's more load in the Pacific Northwest in California mm-hmm. as well. Um, but the transmission infrastructure to get that power there is not there right now. Yeah. Uh, in fact, wind uh, is being curtailed when uh, the grid can't really take that much energy and transport it to where it needs to be consumed. And all of this needs to happen instantaneously. So uh, supply needs to meet demand on you know a second-by-second basis. So I think the solution to that is... Um, 
building more transmission lines, mm -hmm. whether that means a massive direct current highway from, uh, you know, SPP to the East Coast and the West Coast right. to kind of drop off that power where load is uh, on a daily basis. That could make sense. Um, storage is another solution mm -hmm. um, where what do you do with this excess power that is going to be curtailed if it's, you know, rather than you know, turning the turbines off or shutting the solar down, you could store those electrons in a storage resource and then pull it out when the grid actually needs it or when the wind or solar dies down at the end of the day. Yeah. So there's a fantastic book about the transmission problem, uh, I guess, documenting Clean Line. Are you right, familiar with the company Clean Line? Yes, yeah. I, I am familiar. I'm actually reading that book as yeah, we Superpower, speak. Yeah, Superpower, right? Uh, oh, yeah, it was a part of our, our book club here at Invenergy <laughs> that I happened to Well, you guys are part month. of it. You're, you're in the book. That's right. <laughs> our CEO and founder is quoted in the end, I believe. Yeah. That's really I, cool. I love that book. I recommend it to all, all of our listeners. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll have to look that one up. But one thing, the moral of the story is transmission uh, development moves slowly. And I would say right now in, you know, various markets, they need more transmission than they have. And it's going to be slow moving for the next few years. But ultimately, uh, I think a, a solution will develop. And why, why is it so slow moving? I think um, developing transmission lines, you step on a lot of toes. There's yeah. a lot of you're crossing state boundaries. You're crossing different uh, municipalities and um, a lot of different land and rights. Absolutely. So when you kind of aggregate all of those aspects into one continuous physical transmission line that crosses all these different uh, regulated pieces of land and ownership rights, it, it's kind of a big headache. And without just using eminent domain, which right. is you know, the government's right to kind of uh, procure land as a private company, it's very difficult, but, you know, doing that on a aggregate level, crossing those state boundaries, it's extremely difficult. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's coordinating and getting thousands of stakeholders on the same page, which actually is a tremendous opportunity for landmen. I mean, in the oil yeah. and gas space, we do it all the time to negotiate deals and leases to access the minerals, but we need those skill sets in transmission also. So then how many of your projects are incorporating storage then? So obviously, if we can't build the transmission, transmission line fast enough to get our wind to where it needs to go, the, you mentioned the other as aspect is storage. So tell us about some of those projects that you might be working on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a few uh, storage facilities in operation currently, um, but we are developing a lot of storage. Mm -hmm. you know, everything, all of these renewable projects that we're developing, whether it's wind, solar, or even natural gas, we're looking at storage as a, you know, a co-located resource for all these new developments. Um, and you know, for solar, it, I think it makes the most sense right now um, to have storage there as a way to, to make more of a flexible and shaped resource uh, and an ability to kind of put that power into a storage unit and pull it out when the grid needs it or whether, whether market prices warrant it um, from an energy perspective. And then also there's ancillary services. So giving voltage support and reactive support uh, 
for the the grid is another aspect that storage does as well. So mm -hmm. uh, we're we're looking at storage co located on just about every development project. Cool. When you're looking, at, or I guess when you guys are thinking about investment partners for new projects, do you guys typically partner with uh, third party investors, or do you guys self finance most of it? Is it debt financing? What's the investment stack look like? So we are a privately held company. Mm -hmm. um, so you know we have a few routes we can we can partner with an investor. We can go out and raise debt on a project financed um, asset, uh, or you know if we have some some cash sitting around, we can do that as well. Um, but generally, I would say we go to market and finance these projects through debt or various iterations of that. Um, and so you know, if somebody wants to JV with you on a project that they have, then they can absolutely bring it. You guys will try and find, structure the deal that way, but otherwise, mostly debt finance. Yes, and you know we've done that uh, recently. I was involved in the equity sale of our thermal fleet, uh, so we sold fifty percent of our operating thermal fleet to uh, AMP Capital, uh, which is a, a subsidiary of an Australian insurance company. <laughs> just because the price was right or because you're trying to focus a bit more on renewables and less on gas or what was the what was the um uh your inspiration behind that deal uh i think it was an opportunistic deal to mm -hmm. um so the energy industry is a, a capital intensive business um and so it presented a good opportunity to kind of divest in some of our operating assets and free up some capital and go inject that into our development fleet and kind of continue to grow from there. Okay. So that was kind of the, the catalyst for that transaction. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about some of the, uh, the financials, if you're able to share any? Do you guys have a return on investment that you have to, have to guarantee before you're going to proceed with a project? Or, yeah, tell us about some of these financial <laughs> Greater metrics. Greater than zero. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that is what I can say. It is greater than zero. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we look at these development assets um, for the whole entire life cycle and kind of uh, earn uh, a level, which I can't necessarily say here, but mm -hmm. uh, one that takes into consideration and it, to consideration everything and produces a, a viable project for the life of the asset um, when, you know, there's a lot of different factors that can make a project not viable, changes in the federal government, uh, taxes on bifacial solar panels, things like this can cause the economics to diverge a little bit. Um, also, the financial community, depending on uh, raising capital and what interest rates are, that can drive the economics of a project. And those can change from, you know, signing of a, a PPA or a transaction to actually executing on the project. Mm -hmm. um, so we take a very holistic view on the project and try to earn, you know, a substantial uh, return on that investment. Cool. When you're looking for new opportunities, how do you guys find them? Is it just partners coming to you and say that, you know, we want to throw up a solar farm somewhere or are you actively looking at new areas? We try to be ahead of the curve on on that aspect um so you know one one route where we would you know become privy to the potential procurement of new resources would be an rfp process 
so a utility or an entity co goes to market and asks for two to 300 megawatts of a given technology. In that scenario, we would hope to have already developed uh, a project and have rights to land, an interconnection queue, and a lot of the ball rolling already. And then when that opportunity presents itself, we're already there with the best um, development project to kind of give them what they need. There are a lot of factors that uh, make that happen. Um, we have a, a large commercial analytics team that looks at uh, power prices and is always thinking about the forward outlook. And if there is, you know, for example, a lot of value in solar in certain markets because wind has kind of saturated and they need on peak power because sun shines during the day, then these are the kind of things that we're thinking about and trying to position ourselves in the right place. Nice. So was it sort of by chance that you went from primarily thermal generation, natural gas, and now a lot of what you're doing is more renewables? Or was that an active change for you? Is that something that you wanted to, to go into for your career? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I initially came to Invenergy with the idea of working on renewables. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I was put on the thermal asset management fleet. Um, that was a huge blessing in disguise for me because um, when you have a generating resource that is tied to an index market price, you're not really thinking about um, when, the, when the resource is there, you're thinking opportunistically. So on a daily basis, when you have a, a merchant gas asset that is bidding into the day ahead market and trying to produce and optimize as much uh, margin as possible, you're constantly thinking about the efficiency of the gas plant, what gas is trading at on uh, a daily basis, and then if there is a, a spark spread or a, a positive margin on that marginal economics of the gas unit, you know you want to produce that power. Um, so that introduced me to kind of the how to optimize an asset in wholesale power markets and what is uh, a driver or what are the market drivers for the hourly price for energy in both the day ahead and real time and thinking about how to make as much value from an existing asset. So that was my introduction to wholesale power markets and locational marginal pricing and congestion and how all these factors kind of roll up into uh, a dollar per megawatt hour cost. Um, so I think that set me up well to kind of transition to the development side and understand that as coal and natural gas uh, prices increase, although natural gas is very inexpensive yeah, right now. Yeah, you don't now. have to tell us that. <laughs> it's, it, it's free. We're yeah. paying people to take it. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In fact, we're seeing negative prices in, in the Permian, which is yeah. just wild. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that I think uh, it, it puts you in a, a good position to understand, you know, how conventional power intersects with uh, this influx of renewables. Uh, I think natural gas in the past year or two just overtook coal in net generation in the U.S. for the first time and, mm -hmm. you know, since the beginning of the grid. So that's kind of a sign that natural gas is becoming cheaper. That's going to be a very uh, strong resource for the next 20 or so years. Um, coal is becoming less economical. You know, it's not just shutting down because 
regulations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's there's no price for carbon. It's you know there's less coal being utilized in the grid because it's natural gas is cheaper. Yeah, less economical. It can't ramp as quickly as other generating resources. And you know these old boilers from the 70s are you know they're high maintenance costs. Mm -hmm. So new clean gas turbines um, are are very flexible, cheap, reliable. And when you kind of pair that with renewables, that's that's what we're seeing in the shift in the market. Would you recommend that to someone who wanted to go into renewables? Would you recommend a career path similar to yours where you're kind of understanding the aspects of traditional power generation and then giving you kind of a, a, a better perspective on the renewable industry? Do you think your career path is one that you would recommend to younger professionals who might want to follow in your footsteps? I would say that I'm biased, but yes, definitely. <laughs> um, I think more importantly, it's understanding the operations side of the business and seeing real assets that produce power in the market on a daily basis and on an hourly level and fluctuations and how, how the grid actually needs power. And then, you know, having that understanding and taking it to the transaction side and knowing what happens after the deal is signed is a important uh, understanding to know. So throughout your career, um, have you ever believed anything to be true about your job, but had your mind changed? Or the industry in general? Yeah. Hmm. Um, I guess leaving school and kind of understanding uh, the economics of different generating technologies, um, I didn't know you know, the variable economics associated with each type of technology. Um, there were no preconceived notions. Um, you know, when you kind of enter the energy industry, there are a lot of things that exist that, you know, no one else knows that exists, like regional transmission operators, like these non-for-profit wholesale power markets that run on an hourly and second-by-second -second basis. Uh, every day, and that's you know information that I didn't have access to before entering the industry. Um, but once you know you uh, peel back the layers and kind of learn more and more, I think you you're introduced to new concepts and risks and problems and solutions that you didn't know were there before. So while I didn't you know have any existing notions about how the energy industry worked, I just you know continue to learn and you know make pragmatic decisions about what the grid needs. Yeah, it's kind of a black box to most of society, right? Right. The we, ele electrical <coughs> grid is just on. Right. We turn on Th our light thank you, and it utility. works. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, I guess we've got one more question here. What, what industry trends are most relevant to your job and do any keep you up at night? It doesn't necessarily keep me up at night? Well, sometimes it does. But uh, what I follow closely is kind of the, the economics of uh, storage. Um, in the next 50 years, as states go completely carbon free, and you know, there may or may not be a price for carbon in the future, and you have uh, continued build of solar uh, and wind resources, you need to be able to do something with it um, when the grid doesn't need it. So, you know, that example of a hot summer day in August when the wind dies down and power prices are spiking and there isn't a cloud goes in front of the solar panels, you need to have 
reliable generating resources to kind of fill that demand or load uh, on an hour when it might jump 10,000 megawatts in, in an instance. Mm-hmm. Solar, I think, is the future of providing that reliability. Um, the cost associated with storing electrons into a battery right now is somewhat expensive and it's limited. Um, a lot of the storage facilities out there, uh, the lithium facilities can can um, run at full output for two to six hours. Um, but when you have larger outages and grid issues, you know, you need a reliable generating resource to, to run for 24 to 48 hours, mm-hmm. which yeah. isn't currently available other it's than... challenging. Right. You need a whole warehouse of batteries. That's right. exactly right. Or you need a massive reservoir where you can kind of store water, which is pumped hydro, and then kind of pull out that generating... Uh, so spin the turbines when you need it. And those are kind of the largest actual storage facilities. Yeah. But you don't You can always... only build them so many places, right? Exactly. That's kind of subject to the natural geography, mm-hmm. which in and the if Pacific you're doing it to try and save, save the environment, then dams aren't exactly environmentally friendly places of flooding hundreds of acres of, you know, often beautiful forests. And Yes, right? that's exactly right. That's definitely... A, a negative externality uh, of you know the hydro industry, but uh, no, that's that's a great. I think that's a great place to to kind of wrap it up because I mean that is a great point to be made that the levelized cost of electricity for wind and solar has come down dramatically in recent years, but we haven't quite gotten there with storage and batteries yet. So yeah, preview for hopefully another podcast guests on storage at some point so i think we've got someone in the queue for that yeah i know Anasonic, exciting. Maybe? yeah yeah and if not we have an awesome uh, storage development team at inventorgy that is uh winning awards and developing large utility scale storage so nice all right well one more plug for inventorgy then <laughs> <laughs> cool uh cool did we want to do anything else should we thank Saxon yeah. for his time? <laughs> Saxon, thank you so much for your time. It's been great chatting with you. Uh, I feel like I learned something. Yeah, Jake, sure. I, I definitely did. Things on the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Likewise, thank you very much for having me on, and uh, uh, I'd be happy to come on in the future, but uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you all. Great. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Thank Thanks. you. And there you have it, Saxon McKinnon. What a guy. He's really the kind of guy you just want to go and get a beer with and BS for hours about how we might be able to make the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to be featured on our podcast, feel free to reach out. Our contact information is in the show notes. And uh, by way of example, the LA chapter for YPE actually reached out just today. So hopefully we're able to get in touch with someone from their group and have them on the show soon. 